the different seasons of the year. We spend time in the Gospels, we spend time in the New Testament letters, we spend time in the wisdom books in the Old Testament, and then we also spend time in the historical books and in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And that's where we are now here in January of 2021 in that those historical books in the Old Testament. And the reason we do that, that we jump all over the place throughout Scripture in these different seasons is to hopefully show that the Bible is one singular book that preaches and teaches one singular message that all points us to one singular thing and that message that thing that it's pointing us to no matter where you look at it is of course Jesus the whole Bible is about Jesus no matter where you look in it it's always pointing you to him and so that's our goal for this study and every study that we do at Riverview is to find out how does God's word point us to Christ? How does it point us to the redemption that can be found in him? Now, if you were here, if you've been here for a little longer, you'll know that last year, actually the last two years, we spent studying the book of 1 Samuel. And so now it just seemed logical to move on to 2 Samuel to see how that is pointing us to Jesus. And as you probably know, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are all about the life of David. Did you know that King David is the most well-known or famous character in Scripture apart from Christ himself? Even people who aren't Christians know probably two people from the Bible, Jesus and David. And the reason for that is, of course, some of the the stories about David's life are the most famous and well-known stories in the entire Bible. Everybody has heard of David and Goliath. It's become just a part of our culture to have a David and Goliath type of story even, you know, when you have two sports, two teams in sports, one is at the top of their division and one at the, at, at the bottom and the, the, the underdog beats the better team. You call that a David and Goliath kind of story. So everybody knows something, it seems, about David. And that's because, again, David is one of the central figures in Jewish history. He is their greatest king, the greatest king that Israel ever had. During his reign, Israel became actually the most powerful and influential country on the face of the earth under King David. And of course, the Messiah is prophesied to come through his lineage. And these two books of 1 and 2 Samuel tell us all about David's life. And again, they simultaneously point us to Jesus. But not in the way that you might think. You see, Israel had been looking for a savior, And they thought they found it in Saul, David's predecessor, King Saul. They thought, we want a king to come and save us. And so they demanded a king from God, and God said, you'll have a king, but he's not going to be the kind of king you want, nor the kind of king you need. But they refused to listen to God. So God gave them Saul, and they found out quickly that Saul would not be the savior that they desired. And so now the Saul saga is over, so maybe the next king will be the savior that Israel needs. And as I said, David is Israel's greatest king. He is the best by far of any of the kings that they have in their history. He fought and won their battles. He protected his people. He maintained a right relationship with God. The nation of Israel enjoyed unprecedented peace and prosperity and political influence under the reign of King David. He was the archetypal good king. He was just and he prospered his people. 
In fact, by the time of Jesus' day, Israel was longing for another king like David. They wanted another king who would be good and just and bring the people back to God and make them prosper and have victory over their enemies and have that political influence in the world again. And that's why, if you recall, when Jesus was on the earth, they actually took him and they tried to force him to be their king. They said, we, we need another king. We need a savior. We need somebody to, to be our king in all of these areas, to make us powerful and, and, and politically influential. But that, of course, is not why Jesus came. And actually, a good king is not what Israel needs They think that that will solve all their problems, that prosperity and power and influence will lead to an end to all their worries, but it won't. Because they have a deeper problem, they have a more urgent need, and it is nothing physical, but it is entirely spiritual. And that's what we see in the story of David and how this story points us to Jesus. Because it is absolutely true that David was a good king. He did care for his people and lead them and bring them back to God, and he ruled with justice and righteousness. But you know what? That's not enough. David couldn't meet Israel's deepest need. Because in the book of 2 Samuel, which we're going to get to in just a minute here, about the first 10 chapters of that book, we see David in victory. Right? We see his mountaintop experiences. He's doing all of those things that a good king does. And then, from chapter 11 to the end of the book, this greatest king of Israel goes into a spiritual and moral nosedive. Sin after sin, which leads to tragedy, heartache, and despair, proving that a king like David is not the king we need. We need a better king king than David and when it comes down to it David is just like us he has all the problems and deficiencies that we have just dressed up in fancy clothes and wearing a crown on his head we need a better king and the book of second Samuel is proof of that as it shows us David's highest highs and his lowest lows and that better king of course that we need is Jesus he will succeed in all the ways that David fails we will find our deliverance in him, not in David, and not in any other man, and not in any system or party or any other creation of human hands. And part of what makes David a great king is that he is well aware of this reality, that he cannot be the Savior that even he needs. David himself wrote these words that we read earlier in the service from Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David knew he was weak. He knew that he wasn't the king who could save himself. So he called on the only place from which salvation would come, on the name of of the Lord. And that's the purpose of this book, to call us, you and I, to trust in the name of the Lord our God and not in any man, not in any king or ruler or savior, but to trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the point of the book of 2 Samuel. So let's get on with it here. The book opens up right after a fierce battle had ended. It starts right where 1 Samuel left off. King Saul led the Israelites into battle against the Philistines, a battle that he knew he would lose going into it. 
And it went so badly, in fact, that Saul's son Jonathan was killed, and Saul himself was mortally wounded. And rather than allow himself to be captured by the Philistines, you know, and paraded around as a a trophy, he decides to kill himself. So Saul takes his own life on the battlefield. Now David and his men, they didn't fight in this battle, so they weren't aware of all of this. They were off kind of doing their own thing out on the side. But here we go in in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 1. It says, On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So this messenger brings news of the outcome of this battle to David. Although he's changed the story quite a bit. Saul actually, like I said, committed suicide on the battlefield, but this messenger says that he killed Saul at Saul's request. Now, why did he change the details of the story? Well, because he thought the news of Saul's death would be good news to David. And maybe, just maybe, he would be rewarded for being the bearer of such good news. Now, why would the the news of Saul's death be good news to David? Because Saul and David were sworn bitter enemies. We saw that in 1 Samuel. It started, actually, when David killed Goliath. People thought David was amazing. He was even better than Saul. And so in order to, to keep his enemy close, so to speak, Saul invites David to come and work for him in his court, which David does. But Saul becomes even more jealous of David, and he actually tries to kill David twice. But David escapes both times. And then Saul sent David out on basically a suicide mission to try to win Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. And Saul is certain that that will kill David. He's not coming back from this one. But guess what? David comes back and he takes Saul's daughter in marriage. And then David, so Saul tries to assassinate David yet again while he's sleeping. But David escapes. And he eventually runs away from Saul and he stays with the Philistines And Saul keeps trying to find him, killing anyone who gets in the way of him finding David. Men, women, children, it doesn't matter. If you get in Saul's way, you're going down in order for him to find David. And Saul puts a bounty on David's head. And for about 10 years, David lives in the wilderness, going from cave to cave to cave, living as an outlaw, always on the run, always being hunted, never having a home to go to, never feeling safe or at ease. So Saul and David are sworn enemies. Whoever kills the other is going to be the king of Israel. And all of these things were common knowledge. So when this messenger comes and finds David and tells him that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead, 
He thinks that he is delivering good news to David. Why wouldn't David think that's good news? But this messenger, this poor guy, is about to get a very serious shock. Look at verse 11. It says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So what the messenger sees in David when he delivers this news is not the jubilation that he expected. He expected David to say, well, let's have a party. My sworn enemy is dead and now I'm the king. Let's live it up. But that's not what happens. David tears his clothes, right? Which is a symbol of mourning. And he and his men all fast, which is another symbol of mourning. And then in the very next verse, in verse, starting with verse 13, David has that messenger executed for the crime of killing the Lord's anointed. Not what this guy expected to happen. And I think it's actually understandable that he would be confused about why David grieved rather than celebrated when he learned that his mortal enemy had died. After all, now David would be king. Isn't that something he wanted? Then why wouldn't he be overjoyed that Saul was dead? In fact, in the next verses, David goes on to write a song of lament about Saul and his son Jonathan and orders it to be taught to everyone in the tribe of Judah. Look at what David says about these two men as they fell, starting with verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Rather than rejoice... David laments the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, I think we could understand, because again, if you were here last year, you heard how close Jonathan and David had become. They had sworn allegiance to one another. They were going to rule over Israel with David at the head and Jonathan right beneath him. They were as close as brothers. But Saul, why would David lament the passing of his most bitter enemy instead of celebrate? He even uses flowery language to describe Saul. He says, Saul, beloved and lovely. He talks about Saul's valor in battle and even curses the mountains where Saul died and he laments the fact that Saul's death is going to be celebrated by the Philistines. There are two reasons, I think, that David grieves over Saul instead of celebrating. And I think you and I can learn from them. First, in the most basic sense, David grieves the passing of Saul because Saul was a human being 
made in the image of God. And as such, he was important. He had value, even if he was David's most bitter enemy. All people bear the image of God and have value, regardless of who they are or what they have done. This is why we recognize the Sanctity of Human Life Month, which I told you about earlier, because all people, namely unborn babies, are made in the image of God and therefore have value. So we denounce abortion, the killing of unborn image bearers. And also, likewise then, if we are all made in the image of God, and that is why we have value, because we have something of Him in us, then the death of any person, even our most bitter enemy, is a tragedy. Think of the most vile, rotten person you know. Get an image in your mind of the biggest rival you have, or your most bitter enemy. That person that you're thinking about has been made in the image of God. God loves that person and knit them together in their mother's womb. And he has a plan for them and has been, that has been established since before the foundation of the earth. God even sent his son to die for that person to bear the weight of their sin so that they would find eternal life and redemption by trusting in Jesus. That, in its most basic form, is who all people are. Even the ones who are our biggest rivals our biggest enemies even. Has someone done some rotten thing to you? Sure. Have they sinned against you? Absolutely. But no more than you have sinned against God and he has found it fit to extend grace and forgiveness even to you. Should we not do the same with those who have sinned against us? And should that, should that not motivate us to share the gospel with them? People bear the image of God Almighty. And every single one of them has value, therefore. So David grieves and mourns the death of Saul because he is specially created, an image bearer of God. But a more significant reason why David actually grieves instead of celebrates is found back in verse 16. Look there for a second. David says to him, this messenger who told him of Saul's death, he says, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed, which means that God ordained Saul to be the person he was, meaning that God used Saul to carry out his purposes for Israel and for David. Saul was a piece of the puzzle of David's life that God was in the, po- in the, in the process of putting together, of unfolding. And if David would have rejoiced in Saul's death, it would have effectively called into question God's will for David and his wisdom for allowing Saul to act as he did. Now, that's a lot right there. That's kind of a deep statement. Do you understand what I'm saying? David believed that God had ordained Saul to be the vehicle that would bring him into the kingdom. But in order to get from here to there, David had to go through a lot of bad stuff. In fact, 10 years worth of bad stuff. And twice in those 10 years, David had two clear opportunities to take Saul out of the picture, to kill him and be done with him and inherit the kingdom. But he didn't do that either time because he knew that Saul, in some way that he couldn't quite wrap his mind around, was part of God's plan for him. God promised to make David king. 
And for David to kill Saul would be an attempt to assert his own authority over God. So rather than force God's hand, David decides, Lord, I don't know what this guy is or how you're going to use him, but I know he has a purpose in in my life. You are ordaining him to be who he is and do what he's doing in some way, shape, and form to carry out your purposes in this world. I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust in you. Saul, Lord, is your anointed one. And far be it from me, Lord, to try to assert my will into those you have anointed for your purposes. And so also far be it from me to rejoice when I hear that God's anointed one has been killed. So for David to rejoice at the news of Saul's death would be to go against the trust that he had that God used Saul for his own purposes. Rejoicing over the death of Saul would be to imply that God should have known better and killed him earlier than he did. After all, doesn't God know how much of grief Saul caused David? It's true, Saul was a thorn in David's side, but God has a way of using thorns inside to show us his perfect strength and to carry out his purposes for us. This is the verses that we started our service with today from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh. In verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That thorn that Paul had in his flesh made him weak, and it was unpleasant. But he realized that when he was weak, he had the opportunity to trust more in God's strength. And that's the way I think David thought about Saul. This guy is literally a pain in my neck. But God has ordained this for me. And so I'm going to trust him and lean into his strength, even though my strength is sapped. And Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God uses weaknesses to make us strong in Him. He uses thorns in the flesh He uses people like Saul to cause us to lean more into him. You see, David had the ability to look further than just what was happening in the moment, but to also see God's purposes unfolding through what was happening in every event in his life. And that's why during that 10 years, even though he had the opportunity to kill Saul twice, he passed on it because he knew God's doing something here. I'm not going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to trust God. And David was able to see how God could use someone, even like Saul, for David's good. David was able to take the long view of things. He was able to see the bigger picture of what God was doing. And let me tell you, that is a difficult ability to develop. It's one that only comes with time and practice. And it's one that is so rare in our culture. Right? Aren't we just, we're the instant culture. We're we're the fast food culture. Everything happens now, now, now. And you see this especially in our day and age on social media, 
right? Something happens. Well, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to think deeply about it. I don't need to meditate on it. I don't need to collect my thoughts about whatever topic it is. I'm just going to verbally vomit whatever is in my head onto a screen. We are trained to live in the moment. We are trained by our culture not to think deeply about things that happen in the world or things that even happen in my life. And so we tend to just respond in the moment. Whatever the first thing that pops into my head is what's going to come out, either my mouth or my actions. And let me take just a second to talk to you younger people, you kids and teenagers. You are living in a world that is forming you and training you to live in the moment. Don't do it. Think deeply. See the bigger picture of what is going on. Ask yourself, what are God's purposes in these tiny little things that happen? Even the bad ones, the thorns in my flesh, the souls that come, out, come at me. Don't live in the moment. Take the long view. Think about what God is doing in the bigger picture. And God certainly does work in the moment, but he is using each individual moment to unfold a much larger picture of his purposes. I've mentioned before that one of my privileges at Riverview also, in addition to preaching, is I get to teach the middle school Sunday school class every Sunday. And one of the illustrations that we're using this year in our class is we have kind of a grid on one of our bulletin boards downstairs in our Sunday school classroom. And I think there's, I don't know, 40 or 50 different spaces on this grid. And I have uh, in my possession a set of, uh, it's basically a big puzzle, okay? So I have all the puzzle pieces in a stack. And every week I give the kids a couple of pieces to put on that grid. And it's going to form a larger picture. But right now, we only started this a few weeks ago. Right now, down in our, our, our classroom, there's only maybe a half a dozen tiles stuck on this grid. You know what? You can't tell what the picture is from those little tiles, those few tiles. You can only see, and in fact, I think each one of them is black. So it's just like these black dots on this grid. And every time we put up one of the puzzle pieces, I tell the kids, oh, now I get it. When I don't, you know, I have no idea what it it is. When that, that piece doesn't show us anything. But that's the point. You can't evaluate what God is doing by just looking at one little piece of your life right? You can't evaluate what God is doing by one thorn in the flesh. You can't see what God is doing when Saul is bearing down you on you, you know, ready to kill you. David couldn't see any of those things. He was only looking at one little piece of the puzzle, and that's so, that happens to us too. And we're tempted, you know, something bad comes down the pike, and, you know, some bad puzzle piece comes onto our board, and we're tempted to just respond to it, Right? to just live in the moment and push back and lash out in anger or doubt or fear or to you know, curse somebody out or, or say something online. That's our tendency. Folks, that's not what David does. David takes the long view. And he, he doesn't, I don't think he knew any better you know, what, what God's plan was in Saul than you and I know what God's plan in it is and the things that happen to our life. But there's a huge difference in how David responds to those bad puzzle pieces. He says, I'm going to trust the Lord. This piece of the puzzle of my life has been anointed by God to be exactly where it is. God knows what he's doing and I am going to trust him. 
That's the miraculous ability that David has. He has the ability to see that one piece of the puzzle of his life and to reflect on it, to think about it, to pray about how God would use that one piece, that one really ugly, soul-sized piece of the puzzle of his life into some beautiful picture that God is putting together, that God has sovereignly ordained for David's life and is carrying out. To the extent that, get this, David even here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, he praises God for the puzzle piece of his life that is Saul. That's amazing. Because Saul, that piece is a big, ugly piece of the puzzle. At least it seemed that way to David. But it wasn't to God. And David could trust that God knew exactly where that big, ugly, Saul-sized piece of the puzzle fit into David's life. So even though Saul wasn't a pleasant part of David's life, David could praise God for Saul because God used Saul perfectly in creating the picture that was on the box of the puzzle of David's life. Now the reason it's difficult for us to have that same kind of view of our lives and the circumstances of our lives is because that thorn in the flesh, it hurts. To have Saul bearing down on you for 10 years and always being on the run, it's not pleasant. And when we're in pain, the first thought in our minds is to do whatever we need to do to make the pain go away as fast as possible. Again, think about David. He could have done that, right? Two times. Two times he had golden opportunities to kill Saul and all his problems would be gone. But he chose not to. You know why? Because he took the long view. Because he said, God's doing something here. And I can trust him. Friends, that's the kind of view that we need to have. The long view. Especially in light of this last year and with God only knows what is coming in this next year. What in the world did God do in 2020? How could God do anything with that year and all of the problems and challenges that, had, that, that it brought with, us, with it? You and I look at last year and we just see a big, ugly piece of the puzzle of human history. God knows exactly where that piece fits. And it will be exactly where he wants it to be to carry out his purposes in this world and in his grand plan of redemption. And so the question is to us, can we trust him? That was the question to David. David, can you trust me with Saul, even with Saul? The question to us is, can you trust me with 2020? The bigger, more imminent question is, can you trust me with 2021? Can you trust me today? I don't know what's going on in your life exactly at this moment of time. It might be very difficult, very painful. I'm telling you this morning, God wants you to take the long view, to look at those circumstances in light of what He is doing in the world, in light of what he is doing in the grand story, the big picture of all the things he has orchestrated, even in your life, down to the most minute detail, and he's calling you to trust in him. What's the long view of your life that God is asking you, calling you to take this morning? What circumstances are, you, are in your life and you're thinking to yourself, how does this work? How does this fit? This can't be right. Friends, it is right. It's what God has ordained. And you can trust Him. This morning we want to celebrate and remember a time of communion together. 
And uh, there's, I had to find my thing. It was on the... When you came into the sanctuary this morning, hope you grabbed one of these. This little cup and this little wafer represent Jesus' body and his blood. And this morning as we remember him and his sacrifice, I want you to think about these elements as a sign and as a symbol and a seal of the trustworthiness of God. God has promised to save all those who come to him. No matter what's happening in their life, no matter how big and ugly and terrifying their Saul is, no matter what that thorn in their flesh is, God is faithful. He has made a covenant with himself, and it is impossible for God to lie, the scripture tells us. And so we can trust him. And of course, we remember Jesus through these elements and the sacrifice that he made. He commanded his people to remember him by doing this on a regular basis, and so we do here at Riverview. And this morning, again, this wafer represents his body, the the cup, his blood. These are symbols of how faithful our God is. We can trust him. You can trust him even with your eternal salvation. He promises to save all those who will come to him. So as you take this this morning, I want to encourage you to think about, just reflect on your own life. What is happening? Where's the Saul in my life? Where's the thorn in my flesh? And what is God doing in that for his purposes, for his own glory in my life? And as you think about that, reflect on these elements that show you how faithful and good God is. When Jesus had this meal with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And Jesus took the cup and he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it. At the close of their time together, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn. And at the close of our time together this morning, we're going to sing a song as well called Out of the Depths. It's a song that we've sung many times here at Riverview, but particularly in light of what we've talked about today. I want you to consider the lyrics of this song and what it is calling you to do. It's calling you to trust in your sovereign God. It's calling you to wait for him, to work out his purposes in the long run, even if you can't see what he's doing right now in the moment. This song is calling you to take the long view and to trust your God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do see your purposes, Lord in our lives and in this world, but we confess that sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's easy to become overwhelmed with pain, with doubt, with fear, or even with anger, Lord. To get thrown off track by the things that are happening in our lives and to forget, it's easy to forget that you rule over all. Lord, help us to have that long view, to not get caught up in the moment, 
but to remember that you are a God to whom a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. And you are a God who ordains all things and whatever you ordain is right. Lord, help us to remember that you are using even the hard times for our good, even the difficult things to carry out your sovereign purposes in this world. Lord, help us to have a certainty and an assurance that you love us, that you would never do anything to harm us, but God, that all of your intentions for us are good, even the hard ones, even the difficult, painful times you have ordained for our good. Lord, help us to see you and your truth in this life. Help us to live in light of the certainty that we have in our salvation in Christ that we just remembered. Because, Lord, you are a God who keeps his promises, who is faithful to a thousand generations. We can trust you. Help us, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.